At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Well, today we get a chance to continue on in the saga of the book of Daniel. I said to you last week as I opened that Hollywood script writers do a great job in building anticipation and when they roll out a new series from one episode to the next. And such is the case as we travel from one chapter of the book of Daniel to another chapter of the book of Daniel. And what an appropriate book for us to start out the year studying. Hopefully you're starting to see why this is the case. And I want you to join me again in the book of Daniel, but this time in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. But we cannot dive into Daniel chapter 5 without giving a brief recap of what happened last week in Daniel chapter 4. All of this uh, study of Daniel has been a reminder to us that God is sovereign over history. The history does not simply unfold haphazardly, but that God is uh, superintending. He is in control of all of human affairs. Somebody repeat after me and just simply say, God is sovereign. I'll say it like you mean it. God is sovereign. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Because there are certain times when it looks like Satan is sovereign, certain times where it looks like everything's random, certainly certain times where it looks like, God, surely you're not in control. But as one great theologian said, over every square inch of created order, Christ declares mine. All of it is his, and he has not lost one square inch of it. Praise be to Jesus. And so, there is throughout the book of Daniel the clash of two worldviews, the clash of two cultures, the clash of two kingdoms. As uh, Chuck Colson, the late great Chuck Colson put it, kingdoms in conflict. On the one hand, there's a worldview of humanism, as we talked about last week, that there's nothing beyond this world, that, that uh, man is the apex of all things, and that we can be great apart from God. On the other hand, there's a worldview of Christian theism, the reminder that God is sovereign, that he is the one that's in control and that at our best we still fall woefully short of his infinite grace goodness and power and that's what we continue to run into again and again and again now in chapter four Nebuchadnezzar this great king if you remember uh, was warned that your pride is going to cause you to experience God's judgment but yet he didn't repent 
even though he was warned, and he continued on in his pride, and he looked over the great Babylon, the kingdom that he was king over. God had given him the grace to be king over, and he forgot that it was God who had given him his power. It was, he forgot it was God that had blessed him, and that's a great reminder to us. Let's not forget that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, and that the reason we're blessed is because of God. That the reason we are blessed is because of who? It's because of God. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his pride says, all this great kingdom is because of me. And God strikes him. And he literally goes out of his mind. And the evidence of him going out of his mind is he began to live and behave like an animal. And that's the case for us as well. Whenever we lose our right minds, we begin to behave no different than the animals, pursuing our appetites without any discernment or discretion at all. And this is the way he lived for seven years until he finally repented. And then he repented and the Lord restored him. And he finally, after four great chapters of God pursuing the heart of this king, he finally repents, looks up to the Lord and surrenders all. I just want to say this as we go into chapter five. God pursued Nebuchadnezzar over four chapters before he finally got his heart. And it shows us something about the patient pursuit of God. And he's pursuing you and he's pursuing those that you're praying for. And just know that God is patient and loving. And if God has been pursuing you, may today be the day where you, like Nebuchadnezzar, surrenders all. As we open up chapter 5, some estimate that there's somewhere between 35 and 70 years between chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're not quite sure, but what we are sure of is that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, is now king over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has died but not before he got right with the Lord. And now his grandson is, is ruling. And we're going to learn a few things today about not only God's sovereign rule, but the, the big question that we need to ask today is, what happens when we reject God's reign? When we say that God is not in control, that God is not sovereign. Well, three things we see in this chapter. One is that we blaspheme God. We blaspheme the most high God. Look at the first 12 verses with me. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the, uh, in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple uh, in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, let me just say, when the term father is used, in particular in ancient texts, the best way to read that is predecessor. It's a predecessor. Just like Israel would often say that Abraham is our father, that we're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What they're saying is that this is who our predecessor is. And so though he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and, and uh, later on in the lineage, he looks back and refers to him as father. Does that make sense? Amen. Well, I'm going to keep reading anyway. Verse number three. 
Then they brought in the golden vessels that he that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and snow. Immediately the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his his, uh, lords were perplexed. Then it goes on to say, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting Uh, Hall And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now, you know, when when we look at this, it's an interesting moment. It's an interesting moment historically. There are some things that are clear in the text and some things that you need a little bit of historical context to understand. What's clear in the the text is that this king is using this moment to celebrate his greatness. And he brings in all of the rulers and to demonstrate his greatness, he doesn't just throw a party for a thousand people. He doesn't just get drunk, but he drinks in front of them in order to show that he's great. He's like showing off in front of this party of people. Look at how great I am. But in order to really prove how powerful he is, he tells his uh, servants, go get the golden goblets and go get all of the royal receptacles that were a part of the house of Israel when we conquer them. It's as if his power could not be established unless he demeaned the power of God. What he wanted to show is that he was God. 
that there was nobody greater than him in all of the land. And so he goes and gets the royal goblets and he drinks in front of this group of people. Now, what you may not know that's going to be later revealed in the next chapter or really at the end of this chapter is while he's throwing a party celebrating his greatness, there's a Persian army that's gathered around the kingdom of Babylon getting ready to mount an attack that will ultimately cause Babylon to fall and to be taken over by the Persian Empire. Now, what's the lesson here? The lesson is, is that when we are consumed with our own pride, oftentimes we miss and we neglect the threats that are all around us. That when we are blinded by our own pride, we miss how Satan is at war against us and the things that we're about to lose because of our neglect, because of our, our pride. This man was about to lose his entire kingdom and he was totally oblivious to it. How many times have I sat before a couple and husband and wife are before us? Maybe the wife called and said, we are in desperate need of marriage counseling. And we sit down and we meet and the husband is sitting across from me and he was totally oblivious that the marriage was even in trouble. He had no idea that there was even a problem. He's humming along as if everything is good, totally not in tune. And here the wife is on the brink of of leaving. One of the things that we need to pray is, Lord, make me sensitive to the things that I'm about to lose so that I won't lose them. Maybe in all of our busyness, and a lot of us uh, know what it's like to work jobs that are intense, but maybe in all of our busyness, we're about to lose our children, the heart of our children, and uh, we don't even notice it. We, we don't even see it. One of the things that I don't want to do is be as foolish as Belshazzar, throwing a party while I'm on the verge of losing the very blessing that God has entrusted to my care. And I pray that that's true of you as well, that you will sure up the things that God has given. Because one of our great prayers needs to be not just, Lord, bless me, but that I would keep the blessing that you give to me. What good is it if God blesses you with a home, but later it's foreclosed on? What good is it if God blesses you with a job, but later you lose the job? What good is it if God blesses you with a marriage, but later you lose the marriage? See, the goal is not just to be blessed, but it's to maintain that blessing. And the key to maintaining that blessing is to honor the Lord. When we honor the Lord, he not only preserves us, but he preserves those things that he has blessed us with. Amen? And here, Belshazzar rather has forgotten that. And so while he is throwing this party, he blasphemes the Lord. And that's what sin will do. I used to have a youth pastor who discipled me for maybe about the first eight years of my Christian journey. And uh, he used to have a saying, Chris, sin makes you stupid. It was a simple statement, but it was a true statement. Sin causes you to do things that aren't wise, that are illogical, that you know in your rational brain does not make sense. You're already king. You already uh, have all of these subjects. You got a thousand people at your party. Why do you need to dishonor God? Why do you need to prove something by dishonoring the Lord? 
It's interesting because one of the stories that I wouldn't expect that many of you gathered this morning have followed is the story of a very famous artist, a music artist during our day. I'm not asking you to look him up. I'm just using this as an illustration. His name is Little Nas X. Little Nas X is a popular artist among uh, uh, a, lot, a lot younger audience. I'll just put it that way. Uh, his, his videos have been viewed over 500 million times, just to give you a sense. A half a billion times his videos have been viewed. But this is a young man who continues to make his artistry, as gifted as he is, he continues to make his artistry an affront against God. And so about an album ago, he uh, made a song where he descends into hell and is throwing a party with Satan. And the kids ate it up and they loved it. And then just recently with his newest album, he uh, dresses himself up in a Last Supper type of setting where he pretends to be Jesus and he's drinking alcohol and partying with the disciples, just totally blaspheming God. And the kids love it. And this is the message that continues to be sent sent to this next generation, that it's okay to blaspheme God, that there is nothing that is holy, there is nothing that is sacred, and there is no consequence if you blaspheme God. That was the message of Belshazzar's day, that was the message that the world was sending in Nebuchadnezzar's day, and that's the message that the world is trying to send to our kids as well, that there is nothing that's holy, there's nothing that is sacred. But remember what I told you earlier, that our number one job as parents, as grandparents, is not only to remind ourselves of who God is, but to remind our children and our grandchildren of who God is. It is our holy and sacred calling to remember. It is our holy and sacred calling to remind And so here, Belshazzar has forgotten, and he's blaspheming God as if there is no consequence to that, and then God shows him that there is. And God does this in every generation. He reminds us that he is who he says he is, that he is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, and he ultimately is in control. And so he sees his hand writing on a wall. In the palace. And, and, and I love what this says about uh, his response. It says in verse number uh, six here that his color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. This was a man who fell in one moment totally apart. One visitation from God And he realized how small he was. And in one night, we're going to see in just a moment, he's going to lose his entire kingdom. I pray that this will be a warning to you and I not to ever blaspheme God. That this will be a warning to you and I not to mock, dishonor God, but to reverence God, to treat him as holy, to reverence his name, to reverence his word, to reverence his house, to honor his people. You know, everything that has God's name attached to it, his creation, his people, his house, all of it should be treated with respect and reverence, not because of the object itself, 
wealth. It wasn't the gold goblet that was so important. It was the fact that it belonged to God that made it holy. Everything that belongs to God is holy and sacred, and we should honor God because of it. Does that make sense? Even when it comes to our giving, you know, one of the things that we often do is we encourage you, give as unto the Lord. And, and we do it graciously, and we do it in a way where the Bible tells us to, out of a cheerful heart, not begrudgingly, but you should give out of a cheerful heart. But let's not forget for just a moment that uh, he, he declared that the, the tenth belongs to me that the tithe belongs to him, that it is sacred, set apart. That's why we worship even uh, on, on uh, the first day of the week, on Sunday morning. It's because he says this day belongs to him. He told Israel the same thing, that the Sabbath belongs to him. And for us, it's the Lord's day, that the Lord's day belongs to him. You see, all of these things we do in reverence of him, but when a generation forgets who he is, then no day is holy. No day is sacred. Sunday is not about worship. It's just about the game and who's playing today. Um, our finances are just about what we want to do and not what he wants us to do. So you see how he blasphemes God by dishonoring these goblets. And here's the thing that's interesting is in the text we, say, we see that he worships the God of gold, silver, bronze, and iron while he's drinking out of a gold goblet. In other words, what men will always do is worship gods that they can control. The reason why worshiping Jehovah is often rejected by the hearts of men is because we can't control him. When Jehovah's in control, he's the one who dictates. He's the moral lawgiver. He's the one who says, this is right and this is wrong. And we like to feel like we are in control, and so did Belshazzar. And yet, uh, while he was panicking, not knowing what this writing was, and none of, his, none of his enchanters were able to tell him what the writing was, um, the queen mother walks in and says to him, don't be afraid, there's a man in the kingdom, uh, your, your father, which would have been referring to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, knew that there, the spirit of, of, of God was in him and he can interpret this dream. His name was Belteshazzar. Notice there's only two letters of difference between their two names. This is significant in just a moment. And so then he comes in and look at verse number 13. In verse number 13, we see the second thing that he does. When we reject the reign of God, we repeat the past sins. It says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have uh, been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. 
He goes on to say, if you can read the writing and make it known to me, and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would Uh, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive when he would he raised up or whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled that's how much power he had verse number 20 but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him he was driven from among the children of mankind and made and, and his mind was made like that of of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will now this is a key verse verse number 22 And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have uh, drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Now again, I want you to see uh, this, this is an interesting moment. Here he is, this honoring God, and then God strikes the fear in him, and he is told about this Daniel who his father, grandfather, named Belteshazzar. Notice there's only two different letters between their names. But when he calls in Belteshazzar, or who we would call Daniel, notice that he refers to him as Daniel. He refers to him as Daniel. In other words, I'm not playing with God anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to call you out of your right name. I'm going to call you by the name that was given to you. I'm going to try my best to uh, take serious this moment. But it was too late. He had already dishonored God. And though there's only two different letters between these men's names, there's a world of difference between their character. Notice that he offers all of these gifts as if Daniel could be bribed or paid off. And Daniel says to him in verse number 17, let your gifts be for yourself. Be careful who you take gifts from. If there is somebody who does not want to honor God, it's better for you to walk away from the deal. If there's somebody that does not want to, uh, to honor God and they're simply trying to influence you and control you by the gifts they give to you, it's better for you to reject those gifts. 
But notice that he said, even though I'm rejecting your gifts, I will give the interpretation. Why? Because my gifts belong to the Lord. You see, Belshazzar, you think your gifts belong to you, but my gifts I've surrendered to God. If you remember in chapter one, he had been trained in the school of the Chaldeans to read uh, the Chaldean literature. The, he, he'd been trained in the languages, in the sciences. He had been trained in all of these things. And on top of that, God had given him the supernatural gift of interpreting dreams and visions. And Daniel understood where his gifts had come from. Let me ask the obvious question of you and me. Do we Remember where our gifts have come from. How many in here know that your gifts have come from the Lord? That your talents, your abilities, your uh, areas where you excel, they are all gifts from God to be used for him and him alone. But I said to you that the key verse of this entire text, in my opinion, was in verse number 22. That you should have known this. You, you, you knew you knew that your uh, grandfather had rebelled and because of his pride had been humbled. And how do we know that he knew? Well, in chapter four, we just read that Nebuchadnezzar wrote an open letter. It was an open letter. And those open letters were preserved. As a matter of fact, one of the things I love about Daniel is that it, it is one of the books of the Bible that is most confirmed by archaeologists. It is a historically accurate book. As a matter of fact, we can track all of the names of the kings in succession because documents have been discovered by archaeologists that confirm the list of the kings. And so the Bible is over and over again proven to be accurate, reliable, trustworthy, and true. And so here this king, Nebuchadnezzar, had left a message for future generations, don't make the same mistakes I made. What a great lesson for you and for me. You know, so often we just want to tell our kids about the highlights of our lives. You know, how many men in here will tell their kids of their high school days how many touchdowns you scored in a football game or how many baskets you scored in a basketball game or how cool you really were? We were going through some old pictures a little bit ago, and my daughter, one of the most offensive things she's ever done, she looked at the pictures and she said, who are all these skinny people with hair? <laughs> and I said, that's your dad and your mom. Go to your room. <laughs> But, but we remember the good old days, right? We remember the highlights of our lives. But when was the last time you pulled your children and your grandchildren to the side and said, I want you to learn from my mistakes? I don't want you to repeat the same mistakes that I did. The financial mistakes that I made, the family mistakes that I've made, the mistakes or lapses in judgment. I pray that you, like Nebuchadnezzar, will leave a legacy for your children that does not just celebrate your strengths, but highlight the mistakes that you've made so that it can be a warning to them. Now, like Belshazzar, we can't guarantee that they'll listen, but at least let's teach the lesson. Let's make sure that we're saying to them, not just where we made it right, but where we made it wrong. Because one of the things that they need to know is when they mess up, how do I get back on track again? Teach your children how to recover after a fall. Teach your grandchildren how God restores after a fall. 
And this helps me immensely. And one of the ways that it helps me is to put in the proper context even the low moments of my life, that when, my, when I'm going through the low moments of my life, it's not all about me. Maybe what God is doing is allowing me to go through a low and painful moment so that the next generation can be preserved, so that I can share with them what it's like to walk through a low and a painful moment, so that I can say to them, this is what it's like to walk through failure. This is what it's like to walk through pain or sickness or even death, and to be able able to testify that even in the valley, God is with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. How many thank God that he's Emmanuel even with us? God was up to something in Nebuchadnezzar's failure. He was trying to preserve the next generation. It wasn't just about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar could, yes, take part of the blame, but yet there was something bigger going on. God had the future in mind. And so he does, not just in our successes, but even in our valleys, he has the future in mind. And make note of it. Don't allow the enemy to steal one of your trials, one of your tribulations, but use even those for the glory of God and a testimony to the next generation. And yet Daniel interprets the dream and he says to him, don't repeat the sins of the past. And if you are a a young person in here in particular, but all of us learn from the past. You know, we're in an election year and one of the questions I've been asking our leaders is, you know, what have we learned from 2020? What what did we learn from the previous election cycle about maintaining unity in Christ, keeping our eyes on Jesus, making sure we're praying for our nation? Hopefully, we're not just repeating foolishly the mistakes of the past, but hopefully we learn from those things. Amen? But when we don't, last few verses, we experience God's judgment. Let me read. I'm beyond my time. Verse number 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Per se, meaning uh, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean, uh, the Chaldean king was killed, and, uh, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I love that the Bible is so precise that it gives us the exact age of the king. And here Belshazzar is giving gifts that mean nothing. Daniel knew it meant nothing. You can promise me all the world, king, but it means nothing because you are about to lose your kingdom. But I want to get back to this handwriting as I invite you to stand. Because we've seen this hand before in scripture, haven't we? That hand that wrote on the wall was the same hand of God that wrote on tablets in Exodus 31, 18. The commandments of God. 
We saw that hand in another point in John chapter 8, that same hand when a woman was caught in adultery, wrote in the sand. As the man surrounded that woman with stones in their hand, he wrote in the sand and they put down their stones and walked away. Here's the real question. When the hand of God writes about you, will it be a story of judgment or grace? Will it be a story of mercy or punishment? Choose you this day who you will serve. And I pray that you will serve the Lord. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would minister your grace to us. I pray that if there be anyone in here that is far from you, that you would bring them near, that you would teach us to fear you, to honor you, to love you. And I pray that the finger of God concerning us, Lord, would write the story of grace because we have repented from our sins and trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Lord, bless us. Help us to learn these lessons so that we might fear only you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.